And now we're reading from the Gospel according to John chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of our Lord. Good morning and welcome to the second Sunday of Easter. Easter is not just a day in the year. Easter is an entire season where we stop and we pause and we celebrate, we feast, because we remember the resurrection of Christ. We remember the new hope that comes with that, and we lean into it during this season together. Now, it's weird to be leaning into celebration and to feasting in a season like this, especially when we're separated and we're quarantined, and uh, we're reminded that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so this Easter will be unique for us. We're going to carry with us that tension, that contrast. And uh, I have to tell you right off the bat, I miss you. I miss being in the same room with you. I miss hearing your voices, seeing your faces, shaking your hands, giving you hugs. I miss hearing you sing and looking in your eyes as we serve communion. And I really miss shaking your hands on the way out of church on Sunday. But this is also a time of possibility of recovery, where we can maybe uh, lean into things that uh, we often forget when we think about church, that church isn't a building. And church isn't an event. Church is the people. It's the community. And we're going to be able to find ways where we can reconnect with each other. Soon enough, we'll be able to gather in smaller groups and meet in homes. And we'll probably value those more than ever before. We'll be able to pray and to break bread and open the scriptures and engage in meaningful um, encouragement and connection. And that's one of the, the sort of hopes that I carry with me in the midst of this. And I hope that you'll carry with it. You carry it with you as well. Now, before we open this text together and reflect on it, uh, and we reflect on what it means to have faith or doubt, let's open our hearts to God right now and become fully present. And whatever you bring into this moment, it could be lots of faith or doubt. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a lot of joy or sadness. Just bring your honest, true self to this moment. And let's see how God could meet us in this sacred text. God, open our minds, open our hearts to you, 
and to each other and to ourselves. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there was a loud shout that grabbed everyone's attention. I wouldn't treat my enemy like that, is what I heard. You see, this world-renowned economist from the Czech Republic, Tomas Sedlacek, a literal doubting Thomas. He had eccentric orange hair and he wore tartan pattern pants. He shouted at me in the low light of this lower Manhattan bar. Now, on one hand, he had a pint of IPA sort of sloshing back and forth. And in the other hand, he had this little black notebook and he waved it furiously as he ranted. But he wasn't angry. I mean, his eyes gleamed and there was a slight smirk that emerged in his cheeks covered with patches of auburn gray beard and all of it was glistening with uh, sweat and with beer. Now, someone had brought up the character in the Bible named Job, and this was a man who had everything. He had a spouse, he had beautiful children, he had an extraordinary uh, wealth, and apparently he had a deep spirituality, and yet he lost it all in a bet. Now, it was not a bet that he made, mind you. It was a bet between these two cosmic characters, God and the Satan. Now, someone chimed in as we were crowded in that bar. Didn't C.S. Lewis once say that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world? And the economist leveled back. I sure hope not. Don't you see? That is the logic of movies like Saw or like Seven. What kind of idiot deity would grab our attention in that way. Now, if this is true, and if there is some strong biblical support for this idea, which I doubt, then you, and he pointed his long finger at me, you should tell people, especially if they attend to become Christians, because that way they can think twice about becoming servants or friends of that kind of God. Welcome to New York City. <laughs> See, I wasn't in the Midwest or the American South anymore. And people, uh, where people hide their questions and their reservations behind, you know, saccharine religious smiles often. But I tell you what, I loved it. I was energized by it. And I realized something about myself that I'm, I'm wired. I am zoned into this kind of environment that's contested. And we all live in this contested space. Now, today in our gospel text, we have a similar exclamation of doubt. Quote, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I imagine him yelling it like his 21st century counterpart, Tomas. But before we jump too quickly into this well-worn story, I think it's important. I think it's crucial even. If we're going to understand this text faithfully, that we have to take a step back and we need to consider the moment which prompted this exclamation. Our story begins behind closed doors. And there's something comforting in a time of closed doors and quarantine and a sense of fear in the air about going outside to begin our story with a group of people in a similar situation. Sometimes uh, there's comfort in numbers. And what I want you to notice is how these two themes emerge immediately as Jesus appears to the disciples, disciples who are huddled behind closed doors, remember. And these are themes that sort of set the tone for the Thomas experience that we want to explore. So when Jesus appears, we see a proclamation of peace on the one hand, 
and we see a presentation of wounds on the other. Now, I first I want to talk about this proclamation of peace. When Jesus arrives on Sunday evening, the first words on his lips are words of peace. Quote, peace be with you, he says in verse 19. And then again, he says, peace be with you in verse 21. And this is so important. Jesus says nothing to them before saying this phrase to them twice. Literally, nothing between. Now, the presence of the resurrected Christ is a comforting presence. But this twofold proclamation of peace, it's critical for allowing the disciples to feel at ease and to even be overjoyed, as the narrator says. Imagine the complexity of feelings here. I mean, they love this guy. He called them into a bigger story. He both saw and spoke to the depth of who they were. He included them at his table. He helped them see their dignity. He helped them see their worth. He was perplexing them constantly with questions and with stories and with dramatic gestures that led them into excitement, the excitement of learning and the excitement of discovery. He inspired them through his sacred rebellion toward the religious and the political leaders and their corrupt systems. And he talked about a different kind of world that was possible, one that was at their fingertips, so to speak, if they could just learn to see and to enter in. And then they lost him. And how they lost him was perhaps the most difficult thing to swallow. The disciples, if you remember, they had pledged their allegiance. They had given their commitment only to run away, only to betray, to deny, and eventually to hide behind locked doors, which is where they find we find them here in this story. In short, they felt guilty. They felt ashamed, embarrassed. They were confused. They were defensive, and they were also afraid. Now, let me ask you this question. What is more terrifying than being in the presence of someone that you've wronged, that you've hurt, or that you've betrayed, especially if they appear to you in a position of strength. I mean, can you imagine cheating an employee only to learn that they were promoted as your boss and now you hear her knock at the door? No, the presence of people that we have hurt or have disappointed is mostly a threatening presence. It's not a comforting one. And that's why they need this phrase, this message of peace, so desperately, because the message Jesus offers them, it's counterintuitive, and it goes against the grain of human instinct and of human expectation. Now, Jesus didn't just show up here. He came with peace on his lips. And when the disciples see Jesus, they are overjoyed. It's because when there's this um, holy combustion of joy, or rather I should say, it's because there's always a holy combustion of joy when our sense of guilt and our sense of shame is met with forgiveness and inclusion. It's the collision of those bipolar experiences that we call reconciliation. And Jesus offers it to his disciples. And when he offers it to them, it puts a wind in their sails. He literally breathes courage into them. And they're seen here delighting and being surprised. And so with the proclamation of peace, we have this tone of ease, which Jesus sets, a tone of reconciliation. 
And it's the wisdom of our secret te sacred text, which teaches us that it's kindness that leads to meaningful change. It's not shame. It's not criticism. It's not social pressure. It is kindness. And it's this proclamation that sets the tone, or at least part of the tone, for the Thomas experience. It is dripping with peace. But the second theme, which also sets the tone, is a presentation of wounds. Jesus presents his wounds to the disciples, and clearly, this is what Jesus wanted them to pay attention to, special attention to. In the story that John's telling, the disciples have already seen a resurrection, but what they haven't seen, what they haven't quite understood, is how God could be at work in the chaos of this moment, the chaos of betrayal, of arrest, of mockings and beatings, of denials, of the flights of the disciples, and ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus itself. When Jesus presents his wounds, he's offering them an important clue, not simply into the meaning of this moment, but into the meaning of history itself. And clearly, it's this presentation that really stuck with the disciples. And it's obviously what they relay and what they emphasize to their friend Thomas, who wasn't here at this first encounter. And we know this because when we do see Thomas and hear from him, it's all he's talking about. Now you see Thomas too in this story, like the disciples, had witnessed a resurrection with Lazarus. But this was different. And at this point, I want to ask the question, what if it wasn't the resurrection that presented a difficulty for Thomas? I mean, what if the hardest thing for him to believe was what the resurrection was affirming? And what was the resurrection affirming after all? It's a good question. The resurrection of Christ affirms that the wounds are the way. Now, what if it wasn't the triumph of Christ that Thomas was questioning per se? But what if it was the means by which that triumph came about that gave him pause? I mean, consider the questions running through Thomas's mind. Could triumph come through public shame, through state execution? Could triumph come when the key leaders of this movement completely failed when it counted and mattered most? Could triumph come through wounds and the weakness of Christ rather than a strength that could rival Caesar or a strength that it could at least secure some competent leaders? Thomas doesn't necessarily doubt the resurrection. Thomas doubts the wounds. And I think we might be in a similar position here. Listen to what he says. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It is the wounds that haunt him. It's the wounds that terrify him. It's the wounds that are closing up the aperture of his heart. And that's the image I think we should imagine. He doesn't like it. It's making him feel out of control. It's confusing. It's making him feel uncertain. I mean, what will this mean for him? And my friends, it's this closing down. It's this shrinking in fear. It's this hedging of the heart that demands the security and it demands control and certainty. That is what the Bible calls doubt. But it's the open heart. 
It's the reaching out. It's the searching. It's the wrestling. It's the honest appraisal. It's the honest emotional response. And honesty is the key here. It is the letting go of our idolatrous addiction to control. Control through right ideas, control through right beliefs or right affiliations. It's the refusal to hide behind platitudes and appearances. And instead, to come out into the open and to earnestly reach for the truth, whatever it would be, and come what may. That is what the Bible calls faith. And so it's no wonder that Jesus looks at Thomas shrinking in this moment. And he simply says, stop doubting and believe. Now, the language of faith that Jesus uses here is active. The words like put and see and reach out. Now, in this moment where you face wounds, Jesus is in essence saying, don't shrink back. Don't close up. Don't try to defend or protect yourself, but open up and reach out. Thomas gets a notorious bad rap here, despite the fact that he's never directly rebuked or condemned by Christ. And yet for anyone in the history of the church to receive the label of Thomas, it's well known that this is not meant as a compliment. It's meant as an insult. It's second only perhaps to being called a Judas. So what do we do with this? I think that we've gotten this entirely mixed up. Religious and irreligious people alike especially in the modern era. Now, I want us to consider a few things. I wonder if what we call or often call faith isn't exactly what Jesus calls doubt here. And simultaneously, I wonder if what we often decry as doubt isn't closer to what John calls belief or faith. We all live in this very unique moment in history. We're all descendants of the Age of Enlightenment, an age where reason and science is king and where everything is up for questioning. In fact, uh, the Rene Descartes, the premier uh, Enlightenment philosopher uh, of the Enlightenment period, he sought to establish doubt as basically the starting point for knowledge and for identity as well. You might know him saying, I think, therefore I am. But later he, he kind of clarified that what he, what he really means is, I doubt, therefore I am. And while we're a long way from Cartesian philosophy in this postmodern age, the experience of doubt is not an exception, but it's a norm. Now, in the words of philosopher James K.A. Smith, uh, reflecting on this secular age that we live in, he said, quote, we don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now." End quote. Now, what I find is that there are two things happening that feed off of one another in this moment. Our churches and our faith communities, they often talk about doubt as uncertainty. They talk about doubt as questioning. They might talk about doubt as a critical evaluation of the tradition or even of the sacred text. That's how our faith communities and churches are talking about doubt. And so when a, 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 an experience of uncertainty shows up in a church or questioning or critical evaluation that is prompted by, could be simple curiosity, or it could be more importantly, a profound experience of pain. In that moment, people are often shamed. People are patronized. They're disregarded. And ultimately at the worst, they're excluded from 
their communities. They experience what they would call a faith crisis, but it's really our misunderstanding of doubt and faith that creates the crisis in the first place. And frankly, it's just so frustrating to watch. Faith as doubt is, I think, what I want us to consider. In our churches, we often talk about faith in a way that means total agreement with an idea. And the equation becomes agreement plus conviction equals faith. Now, in this system, faith comes across as a simple adherence to uh, doctrines or platitudes. And in fact, it's platitudes that we often run to. And like Thomas, instead of facing the wounds in front of us, we prefer something else. We want something that will give us a sense of comfort. We want something that will give us a sense of control. We casually throw out phrases, phrases like, it's all part of God's plan, or God's in control, or you just got to trust God, or God works in mysterious ways. I mean, we could go on and on. You simply insert your favorite phrase here. And you might be saying, what's wrong with saying those things? Now, here's where I just want to be pastoral. There is nothing wrong in the act itself. But statements like that can become empty platitudes when we aren't first honest about how we really think and how we really feel. I can't emphasize this enough. See, to rush to a phrase like, God is in control, or I'm just going to trust in God, before you express your frustration or your anger or your fear or your sadness, it would be like Jesus saying, not my will, but yours be done, without first saying, please let this cup pass from me. Or even more to the point, it would be like Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Before he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, of course, when we're honest about what we really think and what we really feel, our hope is that we'll end up like Jesus on the other side with an open heart of trust and with a sense of serenity and surrender. But that trust and that surrender, I mean, that faith, it won't have gravitas, it won't have substance if you haven't first faced the reality of how you really think and feel. And this is the beauty of the Psalms. We see poetry and prayer making honest, almost embarrassing assessments. The psalmist cries out, where are you, God? Or why is this happening? This isn't how I thought the world worked. One of the psalmists even says, darkness is a better friend to me than you are, God. And then on the other side, we often see that there is this consent, an agreement, a new perspective, a new orientation. And so you see the problem in front of us. It's that when we're held back from honest thinking and honest feeling, we're held back from genuine faith. And ironically, we're held back often in the name of faith. Now, faith, as many of us have been taught, is this unquestioning embrace of the truth. It's almost like a copy and paste version of spirituality. There's no editing, there's no revision, there's no questioning. The problem is this kind of faith bypasses. This kind of faith avoids, it often denies. Now, I want to say this is understandable. Sometimes we do these things because we don't like the insecurity that comes with facing the truth. Or we don't like the uncertainty. Who does? Sometimes it's because we don't want to face the shame or the exclusion of our own community. But the truth is, this so-called faith is often rooted in fear. And like Thomas, 
we don't want to face the wounds. And so what we have often called faith is really, I think, what the Bible calls doubt. And likewise, what if the kind of attitudes and the behaviors that we've called doubt are really what the Bible calls faith? Faith is talked about today as, as we said, a certain agreement with a set of ideas. And then church and unity is all about being with like-minded people who agree with you. But everyone in a room agreeing with each other about everything is so far from unity. It's not unity. It's uniformity. And uniformity is the stuff of empires and it's the stuff of egos. It's rooted in fear and it seeks to control. See, the sad truth is that in the same way that as our children, as children, we'll often choose our bond with our parents if there's this emotion we feel that seems to threaten the bond. And so we also learn in that, in that manner to repress our emotions. So also, we'll often choose our bond with our churches when our questions or when our confusion or our disagreement threatens that social bond. Now, do you see why the environment that Jesus establishes in this story is so important? What tone characterizes his presence here? It's one of patience. It's one of peace. And yes, it's one of kindness. And it's that environment and in that environment that someone like Thomas can open up, can reach out, and can experience faith that actually brings life. You see, the emotion and the confusion that comes with our wounds and with our pain, it is not tame. It is wild. And it runs wild in the Psalms. It runs wild in the wisdom literature of our sacred text. It runs wild in the prophets, and it certainly runs wild on the cross. And you and I need a spirituality, especially for this moment, that's wild, that's daring, that's willing to take the risk of honesty in order to stay open and alive. If we close off to our emotions and to our confusion in the name of faith, something in us dies. Because death is about disconnection, and death is about separation, literally. But life is all about connection. It's about bringing things into alignment. And only when you can bring all that you think and all that you feel into alignment can you experience life that's truly life. Now, we need a spirituality that can get us to that place. We need a spirituality that can foster that kind of authenticity and honesty. It's the spirituality that Jesus models himself and that he fosters. As John Caputo says, quote, faith is idolatrous if it is rigidly self-certain, but not if it's softened in the waters of doubt, end quote. You see, doubt delivers us from a fake faith that depends on untested platitudes. And in the words of my love and my favorite theologian, Kindi Radzina, doubt is the antithesis of faithful platitudes. We need guides right now. We need friends. We need a church that will, like the good shepherd that is where we bear our name, will walk us through the valley of the shadow of doubt so that we don't have to live in fear and we don't have to live in isolation, but we can experience connection and life. That is the church that I hope we are. That's the church that I hope we grow to become increasingly over the years. And so may the love and the kindness we see in Christ open us up to the search 
open us up in our seeking. And remember, our seeking is often prompted by doubt. And so in seeking, may we find. Amen.